Bibles to uh, the book of Revelation. If you have a Bible with you. Uh, if not, we'll have it on the screen in front of you uh, as well this morning. But we're going to continue uh, in our sermon series on the book of Revelation. Uh, so for uh, those of you who uh, have, are, are new or haven't been around at City Hope at all, um, we started this just a few weeks ago. Uh, so you haven't missed much uh, in terms of the book of Revelation, and uh, don't get too scared. We're trying to walk through this book in such a way that we can actually understand uh, what this book is teaching and its purpose for us. Uh, not, uh, the purpose for us is not to uh, be able to watch world events and exactly identify who the Antichrist is and Uh, exactly what's going to happen and all of these crazy things. That's not the purpose of the book. And so hopefully we're going to walk through and show you um, that this book, which is full of apocalyptic language and and, uh, themes and uh, symbols and all of these things, we're going to help you walk through this in such a way that you can actually understand what is Jesus teaching us in this book? What is God trying to do uh, here through this book for us? So uh, if you've If you're new here or if you've missed the last couple weeks, we have gone through two sermons so far, and I would encourage you, uh, on our website, you can get to our podcast or anything like that. We record the sermons, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to the first one uh, because it gave an overview of the whole book and kind of how we're understanding this. So if you're interested in all in like, hey, what are we looking at? What are we going to be doing here as we walk through that? That first sermon will give you a little bit of an idea of it. Um, Well, so we're in chapter 2 this morning, and I want to talk about an event of church history called the Donatist Controversy. Now, the Donatist Controversy is, uh, it's named after this certain bishop, uh, and it's in the uh, 4th century, so uh, this is a long time ago. And uh, under the Roman Emperor Diocletian, uh, there was an incredible amount of persecution on the church. And that persecution in particular, they were seizing the scriptures. They were taking the Bible away from Christians. And some Christians handed the Bible over to the authorities. Uh, And these were what uh, other Christians called lapsed Christians. They had handed over the scriptures. They had given up the scriptures. They did not endure faithfully under the persecution, and so they had given it up. Now, what happened was after Diocletian uh, was out of power and the church was not under persecution, many of those Christians who had given up the scriptures wanted to come back to the church. They felt terrible about what they had done. They wanted to repent and come back to the church. And the church accepted their repentance and brought them back in, except for Donatus and those that followed him. He felt like the church needed to be more pure. And so the Donatists wanted a pure church. No one who had handed over or lapsed could come back into the church. And in particular, no one, they did not recognize any priest or bishop that had been ordained by someone who had lapsed. So like if you were ordained by this guy and we found out that guy had uh, handed over the scriptures, we didn't, we didn't value your ordination. You, you weren't actually ordained. We weren't going to accept that. They were after a pure church. They wanted purity. They wanted to endure. They wanted to be faithful, but they lacked love. They lacked love and forgiveness. They were lacking in the things that Jesus had called them to do, which was to forgive their brothers and sisters. And so uh, Augustine and others wrote against them, and 
ultimately it faded away. But that's really the question for us this morning. Uh, remember, the book of Revelation is trying to get us to endure faithfully no matter what would happen. But the question before us is, will we walk in the strict way of purity, or will we walk in the way of love? Will we walk in the strict way of purity, or will we walk in the way of love? This morning, we're going to look at the first of seven uh, letters to, or messages, uh, specifically from Jesus, to the seven churches. And remember, the number seven in the book of Revelation is really important. It just means fullness. It means perfection. It means uh, all of, right? And so it's this, this uh, view of fullness and perfection. So when Jesus is speaking to the seven churches, he's speaking to every church. He's speaking to the universal church. That's the, the way of, of talking in apocalyptic language for speaking to the whole of the church. So it's not just that this is a message to the church in Ephesus. It's also a message to us. And each message here is a message to a specific church in a specific geographic location, for sure. But it also applies to all of them. Uh, actually, if you look on a map, the, the names of the cities actually run in a circle. Because the point of this letter was to be, the whole book actually functions as a letter, right? Was to be read at each one of these churches. And so the message of this isn't just to the, message, or to the church in Ephesus. It's to the full universal church, including us. Now, each of these messages uh, functions in the same way. It breaks down the same way. It starts with a part of the vision that John first saw of Jesus that we talked about last week, the Son of Man. This glorious image of who Jesus was that he sees in the throne room of heaven. And it will start, each one of these will start with a portion of that that applies specifically to the church that he's talking to, and the message that he wants to share with them. And then he's going to commend the church in some way. He's going to say, you're doing this thing really, really well. Good job. Keep going. But then it will say, but I have a complaint against you. And he will lay out something that the church is not particularly good at. The reality is, if we read through all of these, we might conclude that the church is kind of a mess. Which, if you read through the book of Acts, or any of the New Testament letters, you might conclude that the church is kind of a mess. Which is why, when you today look around, you might conclude that the church is kind of a mess. That's always true. It's always true. So we're walking in assuming that the church is kind of a mess. And yet, Jesus loves her dearly. And so, he's going to offer some complaint to them. And that complaint is going to come then with a challenge. I'm going to challenge you to do something in light of this complaint that I have. And finally, he finishes with a promise. Some promise to the end of the ages that applies specifically to their situation to encourage them. So let's go ahead and read Revelation 2, 1 through 7, and we'll see kind of this play out for us. I'm going to try this, Jonathan. We'll see if it works. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Remember, the seven gold lampstands represent the seven churches. So he's saying, from the one who is present among you, 
from Jesus, this one who lives among you, I have this message for you. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you, first, as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. All right, so it breaks down in the same way that I just said, right? So first it starts with the vision. The one who stands among the seven lampstands and the one who holds the seven stars in his hand. Again, both referring to the churches and the angels of the churches. Jesus is present with the church for encouragement and for correction. And then he commends them. He says, I know all that you do. I see all. Which is another way of saying, I stand among the lampstands. There's no place that you can hide from me. I see everything you do. And in this case, when he first says that, it's first meant to be an encouragement because he then commends them for doing well. They have hard work. They are committing good works, very real good works in the world. They are very really doing the work of ministry in the world. They're building the kingdom. They're serving their neighbors. They're loving the poor and serving them. They are doing the work of ministry and sharing the gospel with others. They are doing all of these things. And they have patient endurance, not tolerating evil. This group of people that he referred to, the Nicolaitans, uh, were a group of false apostles that came in and taught other things. And they recognized that these are false apostles and call them liars. They don't tolerate those evil things going on over and over again. They are calling out these false teachers for what they are doing. So they are enduring faithfully, they're calling out false teachers, and they are committing good works. Great job, Ephesus, you're doing well. And yet, he has this complaint among them. He says, you don't love me or each other as you did at first. Some of your translations may say, you have lost your first love. You have lost your first love. Well, what is the first love required for the Christian? What does Jesus teach? He says that the fullness of the law hangs on loving God and loving neighbor. They have lost loving God and loving neighbor. So they are committing all sorts of good works. They are doing all sorts of action, and yet it is lacking in love. Friends, that means we can do all of the work of ministry and make it look like we are doing all of the right things, and yet not have the motivation of love in our heart. And Jesus sees it. 
He sees it. The difference between a church doing all good things out of love and a church doing all good things not out of love, you might not be able to tell. The difference of a Christian doing all things out of love and a Christian doing things out of duty or to earn their own place, to earn their own good salvation, or because they feel bad about something else, or because they are jealous of others and want to look better, all of these things, I just kind of sorted through a couple of motivations in my own heart there, so, you know, just not talking about anyone else here, if, if it applies to you, you know, go ahead, see that, right? There are all these other motives that we can have in our heart, but you know you can't tell the difference, can you? between someone serving faithfully with love and someone serving faithfully without love. But Jesus can see it. Jesus can see it. And so he challenged the, challenges them. He says, repent or judgment will come. He says, repent or I will remove your lampstand from amongst the lampstands. This church, Ephesus, if you don't repent, it will no longer exist. The church will be gone. I will come and I will take away your lampstand. The kingdom will still grow. I have all these other lampstands. The kingdom's still going to grow. But you will not be present there. I'm going to remove your lampstand from amongst you. Again, remember, the book of, of Revelation is meant to give us very vivid pictures so that we would say, oh no, what should I do? And Jesus says, repent or this judgment will come. And then he gives a promise in the midst of that command to repentance. He gives a promise. He says, to everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. This is a picture of looking forward to the end of Revelation in which there is going to be a tree of life in the new heavens and new earth. And he says to the one who is victorious, you get to come and partake in that. You get to come and eat that fruit. You get to come and enjoy that fruit. So it's this picture of the future looking forward. We'll talk about what this means to be victorious here in a moment. But really what we're looking at here is how do you combine orthodoxy, right, belief with orthopraxy, right, practice, right? That's all those two words mean is right belief and right practice. How do you combine these two things so that you are both believing the right things and being sure that you're maintaining purity, but also loving well? Also loving well. Now, lack of love, you'll notice, is not solved for Jesus here by saying, wait, why are you calling out false apostles? Just love them. See, Jesus' answer to the lack of love that the church in Ephesus has is not to abandon orthodoxy, is not to run away. Now this is the conclusion that many in our day make. Many in our day, you may have friends, or you yourself may be tempted to do this, or you yourself might be thinking about these very things, that if the church functions this way, if the church hates so much, if the church is so judgmental, if the church is such a mess, I want nothing to do with Jesus. Or at least not the Jesus that you teach me about. I might invent Jesus in a different way. I might 
experience, because of what I've experienced, I'm going to turn away and go towards something else instead. Lack of love is not solved by abandoning orthodoxy. Even when you've experienced personally or witnessed others experience a lack of love in the church, the conclusion can't be, well, there must be something wrong with their doctrine. That might be true. But we want to test that in a different way. The lack of love displayed by the church, people walking away from the church oftentimes say, I'm doing so because I want to love others. But the question is, do you? Do you actually have that love? Because Jesus says, do you love, uh, you don't love me or each other as you did at first? Do you, who see other people's lack of love, do you love? Do you continue to love Jesus? Do you love God's people? Do you love your enemies? Which might, in fact, given your experiences, be God's people? Jesus still tells you to love those people. Still tells you to love your enemies. Do you really love? You see, the question is, what actually does the love that Jesus is calling us to, what does it actually look like? Because there's a lot of cultural ideas around love, which may fall short of what Jesus actually tells us. Love, culturally, is uh, it's, it's really all about an emotional response or feeling, and... Not, uh, it does not include any sort of challenge to you or anything that you do. It can't be loving if I challenge you. That simply can't be true, though, friends. It cannot be true. Parents, you know that you love your children, and therefore you challenge them so that they would walk in obedience, so that they would enjoy good things. You correct. That's love corrects. So Jesus here is showing us what that love looks like by challenging the church in the midst of this spot. So love can't include no challenge. It also can't simply be a feeling in which I experience because those are fleeting. Is Jesus really calling me only to fleeting experiences? Or is love a, 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 a both an emotional response for sure but also followed up with an action, caring for the good of another and then using everything in my power to accomplish the good for another. We're going to look a little bit more about what love looks like, but the reality is our culture very much struggles with real love. We have an intense amount of contempt for one another. Those who leave the church because of a lack of love in the church, often have great hatred and contempt and bitterness towards those in the church. Actually, like kind of doing the opposite of what you said you were doing to leave the church in. And those who remain in the church often have a bitterness and a lack of love and a contempt towards those who do leave the church. A hatred towards them. Or a hatred towards those who live a, a life different than my own those who I think are sinning against God's word, 
I don't actually have to love them. Those who disagree with me, I don't actually have to love. You see, the solution to a lack of love, which is the problem for Ephesus, and dare I say the problem for us, is not running away from orthodoxy. It's repentance. It's repentance. Jesus commends them for rightly holding fast to his word and discerning the false apostles, but he says to them, repent. You see, orthopraxy and orthodoxy, right living and right believing, are actually two sides of the same gospel coin. They are actually two sides of the same gospel coin. You need both. You cannot have one without the other. To claim to have orthodoxy without Love and without orthopraxy, without right living, is to deny the very teaching that Jesus has. So it's not orthodox. And to have truth, orthodoxy without love, is to deny the very truth. You cannot have love without orthodoxy, and you cannot have truth without love or orthopraxy. Now, maybe in your mind, Right now, you have in mind someone or some church that you know that fits this bill. And you're like thinking already, right? Like as I talk about those that are unloving and care about doctrine a lot, you're like, ooh, man, that person's got to hear this sermon. Those folks, those doctrine-loving, people-hating fundamentalists, those are the folks need to hear they have lost their first love sure that might be true but remember jesus is holding the seven stars among the seven lampstands meaning he's talking to the church universal meaning friends this is not someone else's problem it's our problem actually what if we in our zeal for calling out unrighteous behavior and lack of love in our brothers and sisters in christ might cause us to lose our first love, God and neighbor? What if we lose our love for Jesus, and what if we lose our love of people, our love of enemies, our love of the people we think are getting this very thing wrong? See how subtle sin is? We can actually say, you are getting all of this wrong, and you're not loving. And my heart in the midst of that can stop loving you. Do we love the racist? The activist? The Christian nationalist? The liberal? The conservative? The critical race scholar? Or the critical race theory denier, the political opponent of mine, or the fundamentalist. Across the board, do we love them? We can lose our first love and be swallowed up by what we see as the right way to be a Christian. Again, I'm not saying here that clear wrongs don't need to be called out. They do, right? Jesus commends them for calling out wrongdoing. He commends them for calling out false apostles who are teaching the wrong thing. He says, keep doing that. That's good. You have this in your advantage. You are calling out the wrong. 
He's not saying be silent about it, but he's saying watch your heart. Because in the midst of it, you may stop loving another person. Jesus, by his spirit, is speaking this to us today. The point of any sermon cannot be, whew, glad I got that going for me. Got that one right, right? This, he commends them, yes, and challenges them. No church here is without challenge. Friends, we have to, if we are going to rightly challenge other people to love Jesus and love neighbor, we have to rightly challenge us, ourselves, to love Jesus and love neighbor. So City Hope, we need to call for justice. Yes, passionately call for justice, but not without love. We need to call for truth. Yes, passionately, but not without love. We need to serve the poor, orphans, widows. Yes, passionately, but not without love. Jesus may say to you today, City Hope, I commend you. For calling out the false gospel of Christian nationalism. The reality is, this book fights against that very thing, right? We talked about it at the very beginning. The whole point of this book is, do not side with Babylon, right? Which John identifies Babylon as Rome, the empire that they're living in. Well, John, if he were writing this today, would identify City Hope, you're living in Babylon, America. It's Babylon. It's an empire. It will fall. That's, that's the point of the book. Don't mix those. So this idea of Christian nationalism, which certainly is talked about quite a bit these days, and is a very real problem in the church. There are very real forces at work to get people to believe that we ought to embrace everything that America has for us, and we ought to mix Christianity with American politics and America itself. We can't mix empire and Christianity. Because if you do, guess what wins? Empire wins. It will swallow you up. It will swallow you up. We certainly see this happening all across the country. Christianity identified with just one political party, and that party being able to shape the moral and ethical stances more than the Bible. You actually begin to embrace the moral and ethical stances of a political party, and then interpret the Bible through that. That's wrong. We cannot buy into American saviorism or exceptionalism, that God needs America somehow to bring about his kingdom. That is a false gospel. Now, I am certainly thankful to live in this country, to live in America, for sure, but we cannot conflate the kingdom of God with this nation. This is not the city on the hill. The church is the city on the hill. America is not. It is not the coming righteous kingdom of God. So that means, now, here's the thing, right? We, we can talk about that in, a, in the realm of like, hey, this thing exists out here, Christian nationalism. We think that's a false gospel. But we also need to actually examine whether we are embracing subtle versions of that ourselves. Anywhere where the American dream or American politics, or American warfare and colonialism, 
or American civil religion, or American racism, or American economic principles, or American social and sexual ethics, anywhere where any of those things conflict with the biblical ethics demanded by Jesus, you run to Jesus, right? Anywhere where it conflicts. When it's uncomfortable for someone else, you still run to Jesus, right? When it's uncomfortable for you, you still run to Jesus. That's the point of what everything that John is trying to declare to them, is to say, this empire will not last. Jesus' kingdom will last. So Jesus may say to you, well done, City Hope. I see that you have rejected this as false. But do you love? Do you love even those who are caught up by that very thing? Do you love them? City Hope, I see that you have identified the false gospel of racism and white supremacy. You call it out. You see that there is a global, beautiful mosaic of God's creation. It is, in part, the very reason you were founded, right? The very vision of our church is to be a multi-ethnic, a diverse people, representing our city well and representing God's kingdom well. The church is a global family of God, and that Jesus died to reconcile and bring together us with God, but also Jew and Gentile, those who are different from one another, all ethnicities together into the family of God. Do you see all of that? And you have rejected and called out ways in which it was, it's not lived out. But do you love? Do you love those who reject this outright? Or those who, through ignorance, per- perpetrate systems of injustice, prejudice, hate, and racism in the church and in society today? Do you love them into this new vision? Do you speak the truth and call it out for sure? But do you remain zealous to love? That's the question that Jesus has for the church. Friends, I I will readily admit, as I was prepping this message this week, Jesus was like daggers to my heart. Like, actually, I don't know if you love. Like, actually, wait, wait, wait. You say you do, but, but what is love? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 what love is. Now, you may have heard this on, uh, in a hundred weddings before. Now, it certainly applies to marriage, but that's not what Paul is actually saying here, right? It certainly applies to all relationships of love, absolutely. But Paul actually here in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 is talking about the church and relationships within the church. He's talking about the very thing that Jesus is calling them to. What does he say about love? He says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything that I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. 
Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Never gives up. Have you given up on people? Like, they are too far gone to repent. It never gives up. It never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection, sorry, it's the wrong thing. When the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned like a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. Friends, the way of Jesus demands love. The way of Jesus is the way of love. Full stop. John, who wrote this book, also wrote other things in the New Testament and tells us this in 1 John 4. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. John knows that we are a mess. And so love is not primarily us loving God and others, but God loving us first. Dear friends, since, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. All who, declare, whoop, all who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. 
For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command, those who love, whoops, God must also love their fellow believers. But love like this, love like this doesn't win. It doesn't work. It it, it seemingly doesn't work, right? It might mean that justice comes long and slow. It might mean that we get hurt. It might mean that we get taken advantage of. It might mean that we look foolish for loving yet again and being disappointed yet again. This love is hard. It's really hard. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in his book, Strength to Love, which is a collection of sermons, I've quoted this before, but he has a sermon in there called Loving Our Enemies, and it's phenomenal. One of the best things I've ever read from him. He says, to our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with, full, with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws, because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. That's something to say to us. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. Love is the only way forward for those who follow Jesus. This way of Jesus will make you unpopular to a lot of people. You're too truth-oriented and make statements against false teachers, so you're too fundamentalist for some people. But you hang out with sinners and tax collectors You hang out with the wrong crowd, so you're too liberal for other people. But isn't that exactly what Jesus did? And isn't what John's saying? If Jesus did this for you, now you go and do likewise. That's John's full logic in 1 John 4 is to say, look at what Jesus did for you. Now you go and do likewise. Look at what he did. You look like you must affirm the ungodliness of those you hang out with because you hang out with them. No, I love them. But our answer to that being unpopular from really both sides can never be bitterness and hate. But it's a temptation. I'm not advocating for silence. That can't be the answer. We are going to have a prophetic call. Remember, the whole point of this book is don't conform to the empire and call out the way the church is conforming to the empire. So we have to do that. But we have to do it in love, in the way of Jesus. Because Jesus says, to the victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. What does it mean to be victorious according to the book of Revelation? 
according to what John says, I think this is dead. We might want to stop here. And they have defeated, Revelation 12, 11, they have defeated him, meaning Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Victory, according to Revelation, is victory by Jesus' death and by loving the world in spite of its hatred of you. Victory is not owning your opponents. Victory is not shaming those who disagree with you. Victory is not canceling people out of any opportunity because we disagree with them. Victory is not violent. It's not political. It's not in avoiding or ignoring those we disagree with. Victory is actually in love. How do we do this? We have to rediscover, we have to repent and rediscover what our first love was. It's what Jesus calls us to. He says, you have forgotten your first love. Your first love is me. And from that, loving your neighbor. We love Jesus because he loved us. What did John say? Love is not primarily your love for God or your love for neighbor, even though that's exactly what I'm calling you to. The only way you can do that is by being loved fully by Jesus. The answer is not to feel horrible now that we have seen, I mean, maybe, maybe you guys are the, or aren't feeling any of this, but I feel a whole lot of conviction by the Spirit. That's like, hey, wait a second, you don't love great. The answer is not to be like, man, I stink. The answer is to repent and say, wait a second, you know what Jesus died for? My lack of love. He died for it. He died for it. He put it to death on the cross. I can actually now love because he already loved me. Because he loved me and gave himself for me, I can now repent and run back to him. And then do the hard work of loving and forgiving others. Those I disagree with. Those that are hard. Those that have harmed me. All of these things, I can actually begin to do that hard work. I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight. Jesus is patient. Remember, he loves us and love is patient. He is kind. He will work on us slowly. But we can repent of our unloving nature and we can Love, because Jesus went to a cross for us and died for us so that any and all who trust in him and him alone can have all of their sins paid for and be welcomed into the paradise of God to eat from the fruit of the tree of life. This is good news. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you now.